We come this morning to the very last miracle of mercy in the Gospel of Mark. The very last miracle of mercy. And you say, well, why is that significant? Because it seems like the entire book of Mark so far has been one miracle of mercy after another, hasn't it? For those of you who have been here the last well over a year, we've been studying Mark together. We have confronted some 20 miracles that Jesus has done. Many of these have been the same kind of picture. Jesus coming across someone who is on the sidelines of society. The leper, the demon-possessed, the Syrophoenician woman, not the Jew, not accepted, bleeding, those ones, those people, you know them in our society, the ones on the street corners, the ones off to the side, not ever in the center of focus in any given time or in any given place, the ones on the outskirts, and ones after another we read, Jesus healed them, Jesus touched them, Jesus spoke to them, Jesus loved them. One after another, after another, after another. And why is that? Because we saw, even over the last two weeks, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, what could be the summation statement of the entire gospel of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. He did not come to be served. He came to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to serve the king of God's kingdom, bringing himself to the bottom rung of the ladder, to the outskirts of society, to the sidelines of human respectability, and served them. And now, friends, we're at the last one. Don't get me wrong. Jesus will perform other miracles in the Gospel of Mark. We'll learn in a couple weeks he cursed a fig tree, seemingly at random. What's that all about? Well, you'll have to wait. Come back in a few weeks. We'll figure that one out. Of course, the great miracle of his resurrection from the dead. We'll learn about that one too. But this is the last one when he heals one of those people on the outskirts, one of those people on the sidelines. The last one. But I want to encourage you this morning, don't let this last one pass by without profiting from it. Don't let the healing mercy of Jesus just kind of dim your own perception. Okay, well, I've heard this over and over because this one is special. You're saying, well, were the other ones not special? No, those were special too. But this one is special. There are a couple things you should note about it just from the, out, from, from, just from the outset. This is the only miracle in the Gospel of Mark in which the person being healed is named for his real name. We heard about a person being healed whose name was Legion. That wasn't his actual name. That just meant how many demons he had possessing him. They had a whole lot. We heard about the father of a child that was healed. Remember Jairus? Jairus, that man coming to Jesus and humbly falling before him and pleading to heal his child. We heard about Jairus. But if you think through the Gospel of Mark, 
just ponder with me. To this point, we've only heard about descriptions. There's a Syrophoenician woman. There's a leper. There's a demon-possessed man. We don't get names, but here in Mark chapter 10, in his last miracle of mercy, we get a name. Bartimaeus. Literally means the son of Timaeus. What's that all about? Here's the other interesting thing. This story, where it is, is sandwiched between Jesus teaching his disciples what real service actually looks like in verses 33 of this chapter through 45. We spent the last two weeks looking at that. And then next week is Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. By the way, it's pretty cool, isn't it? We've been going through this book for well over a year. And next week, Palm Sunday, we get, to st we get to study Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday. Pretty cool how that works. But this amazing context is something we shouldn't let gloss over. There's one other thing I want to say. When I was at my undergraduate university, I was part of the chapel choir of this university. I was a music major. I needed to be in an ensemble. I'm a pipe organist. That doesn't, that doesn't lend itself to being in a in an ensemble very well. We kind of like to be the main, the, main, the, the main kind of thing, right? Um, we're loud. Yeah, that's what we are. And so it, I, I joined the choir, and so I would go to the, to, the, to the chapel service, the university chapel service, each Sunday morning and sing as part of this choir and then go to a, a, another church in, in the evening. And the dean of the chapel who regularly preached there, I think he actually knew the Lord, but the gospel wasn't very directly preached, if at all. But I'll never forget what he said. He said, when you come across a story in the Bible, he said, ask where you are in it. I've actually never forgotten that as a way to read the Bible. When you come to a story in the Bible, it's easy to read it just for the facts, because it's interesting, because, well, I didn't know that, but don't read it just for the facts. Whenever you read a story in the Bible, ask, where am I in it? Which character am I? And that's what I want to do in this story today as well. I want to ask, where are you in this story? The story of blind Bartimaeus and Jesus passing by. That's the title of the message simply this morning, Jesus passing by. And we're going to see that in this story of Jesus passing by and in his interactions with Bartimaeus and Bartimaeus' interactions with the crowd, we may see ourselves somewhere in this story. I want to look at the three main characters of this story, one by one. First, I want to look at Bartimaeus. Then I want to look at the crowd. Then I want to look at Jesus. And here's what we're going to look at the beggar. We're going to look at Bartimaeus. And I want to call it the beggar's moment. The beggar's moment. Now, why do I say that? You need to understand what's going on here in the context. Let's start, if you have your Bible, with me in verse number 46 of Mark chapter 10. Let's be looking at this, and we'll just be moving through this story together in verse 46, beginning. Scripture says, And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, 
the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. Now stop right there. Jesus is on his way where? Jerusalem. Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? Why? To die. He's going to die. When is he going to die? Around what particular celebration of the Jewish people? Passover. The Passover is every spring. This was a spring national celebration of the Jewish people. It continues to be the national celebration of the Jewish people to this day. The Passover, celebrating when God miraculously brought the Jewish people, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out of slavery in Egypt and brought them out. He passed over them and executed judgment on the Egyptians. The Passover. And so this would be the national celebration when all of Israel would descend on Jerusalem. There would be this massive hubbub as great crowds would come from all over Israel and fill up, I mean literally fill up, the entire city of Jerusalem. Now you can read this in the Old Testament Psalms. You can read about the ascent of the pilgrims that were on their way up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, oh, about 2,500 feet above sea level. You always go up to Jerusalem, as I said, and you always go down from Jerusalem. Well, Jesus had been around the area of the Jordan River. He had been around the area of the Dead Sea. And that is in a plain. It is in a valley. It is hundreds of feet below sea level. To get up to Jerusalem, Jesus would have had to go over half a mile in elevation change. But he would have been joined by this whole crowd that was attracted to him and to his miracles, but also they were going to Jerusalem together. And so they were at Jericho, but that wasn't the stopping point. They were going up to Jerusalem with a great number of people. Now, do you know who knew all this? This blind man. He knew Jesus wasn't there to stay in Jericho. He knew he was on the way to Jerusalem. By the way, do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Where was, the good, where was that man in that story of the Good Samaritan attacked? on a road between Jericho and Jerusalem. It was a very dangerous road. That's another reason why they went pilgrimages, large caravans on this rocky winding road that went up from Jericho way down in the plain to Jerusalem way up in the hill. It, it would be about 15 miles or so from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Just one other historical footnote. This is not the ancient Jericho of the Old Testament. That city lay in ruins. This was a new, modern Jericho built for Herod the Great. And it was this lush, beautiful oasis in a desert. A wealthy city. It was a place in which you would have had beggars lining the gates, looking for just a little bit of sustenance. So that's the crowd. The crowd is moving. They're ready to go to Jerusalem in this great pilgrimage, and they're following Jesus, this great teacher who has been doing all these miraculous acts. Now let's look at the blind man. 
Verse 46, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. Now, we've l- learned about, beg- about blind men before in this Gospel of Mark because Jesus has healed them. But just a quick refresher. Blindness was incredibly common in Jesus' day. There were those that were born blind. There were those that contracted a disease that led to blindness. There were unsanitary conditions in that day that without modern medicinal treatment would result in blindness. The eyes being crusted over, no longer being, being able to open. Awful, awful, awful conditions. And blindness in that day was such an awful, awful condition because it made you unable to work. It basically consigned you to be a beggar, to rely only on the mercy of those passing by. And this was Bartimaeus. We don't know whether he was born this way. We don't know whether he, he, he contracted a condition that led to blindness. We don't know. All that we know is that he was blind and that he was begging. But notice this in verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. When he heard. Now notice this word here, heard. I saw an article in the Scientific American this week that talked about the incredible hearing sensitivity that the blind have. And actually, they put it in astonishing terms. In ordinary communication, we speak at about six syllables a second. About six syllables a second. When you hear an advertisement when they're trying to say those terms and conditions really, 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 really quickly, it's about ten syllables a second. That's about the fastest you, seeing people, can hear and process words. Do you know how fast a blind person can hear and process words? 25 syllables a second. Two and a half times faster than that really person who's giving those terms and conditions in an advertisement. Um, They've wondered, you think of blind musicians like Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder or other famous musicians who have been blind. Could that be a product of their remarkable hearing? I don't know. Actually, they, they, apparently they studied and found that in a blind person, the part of your brain that is usually dedicated to seeing, in a blind person, that part of the brain is actually dedicated to hearing too. It's as if it just rewires itself to say, we'll focus on the whole hearing thing. And it gives me this incredible processing. This man would have heard a lot. And I just want you to put yourself in his shoes. He's sitting there by the gate. He's going out to to beg. Maybe it's early in the morning. It's, it's the sunrise is coming up and he hears the bustle of the city. Fruit vendors coming into the city. Here's women, here's women going out to the well with, with a jar of water on, on their heads. Here's people just rustling and bustling here and there. And he's hearing everything. And then he starts hearing this name, Jesus. 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 And he starts to get excited because he's heard about Jesus. He's heard Jesus has been healing people. He's hearing that Jesus maybe even has been healing blind people. He's hearing that Jesus is a person of love and compassion and mercy, but he's hearing something else too. He's hearing something else. Look with me at verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Now notice the change. He heard that it was Jesus 
of Nazareth. In other words, where he was from. That was his descriptor. Oh, Jesus from Nazareth. That's the guy from up north in Galilee. What did he say? Jesus, the son David. What did he hear? And what did he see? The crowd said, he's Jesus from up north. Here's what the blind man said. He's Jesus from heaven. What did that phrase, son of David, mean? The son of David was a messianic title. It was saying Jesus is the Messiah. Because the Jewish people were waiting for the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that God would set up someone on the throne of David. David being Israel's greatest king of the Old Testament. They knew of the promise. They knew of the prophecy that God would raise up a king in David's line. And they were waiting for him. They were looking for the son of David. And now this blind man who cannot see sees more than nearly everyone else in the entire country. Oh, he couldn't see with these eyes, but he could see with these. I don't know what prophecies he knew. I don't know what he heard about what Jesus had done, but it was enough that the Spirit of God had given him eyes to see. I've said this, and I'll keep on saying it as I tell my kids over and over again, what is faith? Faith is seeing what you can't see. Faith is seeing what these eyes can't see. Faith, as Scripture says, is we walk by faith, not sight. While we look not at the things that are seen, Paul says, but at the things which are not seen. You say, how can you look at things that you can't see? Because it's not about these eyes. It's about these eyes. It's about seeing what no one else can. And here this man was blind, but he really wasn't. Jesus, you son of David, you Messiah, you promised one of God, have mercy on me. Oh man, this just stirs my heart. This guy, what did this guy realize? This was his chance. You see that? He knew where Jesus was going. He was going to Jerusalem. Where did this man sit? In Jericho? He couldn't ever, ever have expected to cross paths with Jesus of Nazareth again. And he said, this is my one chance. He heals the blind. He might heal me. I just want to pause for one moment, friend, to say there may be someone here, and you know this morning that Jesus is passing by. Don't let him go until you receive his power for your life. That hymn we sang before the message, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. This man says, I'm not missing my shot. I'm not missing my opportunity. This is it. I'm going for Jesus. This was the beggar's moment. Secondly, I want us to look at the crowd. And I'm going to call it the crowd's mistake. Will you look with me here? Verse 48. And many charged him, instructed him, censured him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Now this is a dramatic picture. This man is shouting. 
This man is not showing what we would call tact. He's not waiting patiently. He's not sitting on the sidelines anymore and letting everyone pass by. In fact, the word here that says he cried the more. I read is, were, is the word that is used earlier in Mark when demon-possessed people shrieked and screamed and yelled. One pastor says it's the same word that's used in Revelation of the birth pangs of a woman crying out. And if you've ever been in a birth ward, you know that is shouting, crying out. I mean, this is a guy who doesn't care about, about being polite. He doesn't care about the society around him. He says, I got one shot. I got one chance. This is it. And notice everyone around him. What the, it says many people around him. Many charged him. Be quiet. Can you imagine that scene? You can imagine it, can't you? Shh! Now, I don't know exactly what it was. I wonder if there was a mixture. I wonder if there were some people that were saying, shh, 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 it's okay, it's okay, shh, 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 shh. I wonder how many other people were saying, shut up, beggar. Be quiet. You're not, you're not welcome here. Don't bug Jesus. In other words, what's going on here with the mistake of this crowd is that they perceive Jesus as being on an important journey. He's on his way out. Stop bugging him. You just sit over there in the corner. He's going up to Jerusalem with this great crowd. How many of those people in the crowd were already starting to look at him maybe as a Messiah themselves? I mean, we know when they come into Jerusalem, that crowd is going to be shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. The messianic fervor is starting to build in those who are following him. And here is this beggar off to the side, interrupting and screaming and shouting and making a big, a big mess. It wasn't only an important, I think, journey. They would have seen this as being an inconvenient time. It's inconvenient. Jesus doesn't want to stop and talk. Jesus is on the road. Jesus is, has things to do. Jesus has people to talk to. And you're just that guy over in the corner. Which guy over the, in the corner? The insignificant one, to the world's eyes. The guy that they see at the gate begging every day. The guy that we're all fine with sitting over in the corner. You say, why, why do you know that? Well, do you remember in John chapter 9 when Jesus confronted a man who was blind? And do you remember the question his disciples asked him? Which man sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You hear that question? Who sinned? It's clearly sin caused this man to be blind. Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? That was the way blind people were viewed. Why are you blind? Because you're a sinner. Or someone sinned. You're, you've got a curse on you. The blind, stay over there in the corner. Go ahead and be insignificant. So you've got someone who's insignificant at an inconvenient time and ruining an important journey. Does it make sense that the people around Jesus would say, shh, I've got to ask you this morning, do you think it was his disciples? Do you think it was them? How slow we are to actually listen to the words of Jesus and obey them. What did we just study the last two weeks? Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you must 
be the servant, literally the slave of all. Jesus, even blind guys, even blind beggars, you mean those ones? Jesus, yes, yes, even them, slave of all. Were they the ones shushing him? Jesus, even at inconvenient times, when we're on the way up to Jerusalem, Jesus, did, didn't you hear what I said? A slave? A slave? A slave doesn't get to set his hours. A slave doesn't get to set his duties. You are a servant of all. If these disciples were the ones who were shushing him like they were pushing away those little children we saw earlier in this chapter, oh, how much we see ourselves in them. How well do you and I do at serving when it's inconvenient, be honest, when we're busy? How well do we do at serving people when they appear insignificant to us? You know what, I'll show you. Come with me downtown sometime and we'll go on the Skyway. The Skyway's still not quite what it was before COVID, but it's getting there. And you'll go through on a lunch rush and you will see a mass of humanity. And do you know what they're doing? They're not stopping, they're moving. They're walking and they're walking quickly and they're talking. Why? Because they have to get back to work. Because they only have an hour for lunch. Because they need, they need to get to lunch. They're meeting someone. And so they pass through the skyways on it with a purposeful stride. How many of them do you think are stopping when it's inconvenient to serve someone who appears insignificant. You know how natural this is? Even this morning, one of my children came in as I was preparing for the message. He wanted to ask me some questions. I said, sorry, I can't. I'm getting ready. I'm sorry. And he was just like, okay, I'm preaching on this. I'm preaching on this. Seriously, how do we do? How do we do when we are busy, when we're burdened, when we're bothered? The disciples were, were us. No. Shh, we got other stuff going on. This was the crowd's mistake. And that's why, thirdly, we need to look above all at what I'm going to call the Savior's mercy. The Savior's mercy. Will you look with me here at verse 48? They charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. He was just looking for mercy above all else. And look at verse 49. And Jesus, what? Stood still. He stopped. He stopped. My friend, you need to see where Jesus was at this time. Where was Jesus going? He was going to die. He was going to Jerusalem to be at the Passover so he could be the sinless lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Just like Passover always was, it was about a lamb that would be slain. Jesus was going to be the lamb of God, and we knew how much that was burdening him, even at this time. And Jesus stopped. He stopped at an inconvenient time for a seemingly insignificant person. I just want to stop. Where do you see yourself in this story, friends? How well do you do at standing still, at stopping to meet the needs of those around you? Dads, I'll tell you when I come home from work, 
It's the last thing I want to do to stop and to deal with needs that sometimes seem inconvenient. I cannot call myself a serious follower of Christ unless I'm going to look at this passage and say, you know what? I need to stop. I need to stand still. I need to listen. How do we do on that? Where are we in this story? I'm just, I, as I came, I was just blown away. Here's a man walking to his execution, literally walking to his execution, surrounded by a whole crowd of people that is starting to praise him as the Messiah. He is just walking up to Jerusalem to be celebrated on Palm Sunday and then crucified and hung on a cross. And what is he thinking about? Not himself. He's thinking about the blind guy sitting and begging in the corner. That's your savior and mine. And how much does that cut to the heart of my own selfishness? cut to the heart of my own busyness in my inability to stop and serve as God wants me to. What an incredible, incredible example. But notice also, and Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. The idea is, cheer up, be encouraged. He's actually calling for you. Can you imagine how quick that man would have gotten up? We actually have an idea. Look at this in verse 50. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. You say, what's the significance of that? This was his cloak. This would have been his heavier coat. This would have probably been his most precious possession. This is what he would have slept with. This is what he would have warmed himself in. This was it. And when it came to seeing Jesus, he said, this thing's gone. And there he went to Jesus. He wasn't going to let himself be slowed down. He wasn't going to let himself be tripped up. He cast away that overgarment and came to Jesus. Look at verse 51. And Jesus answered and said unto him, what wilt thou that I should do unto thee? Can you imagine how fast that man's heart was beating? Can you imagine how those man's knees were shaking? He has been screaming and crying out desperately for this, and now he's in front of Jesus. He can't see him, but he can hear his voice, and the question that comes from this man is, what do you want me to do? And don't, doesn't your heart just break for the simplicity of this man's faith? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. I just want you to notice this. Do you remember Jesus asked James and John the exact same question only about 10 verses ago? Jesus, give us anything that we would desire. Give us whatever we want. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And what did they say? Jesus, we want to be on your left hand and your right hand in your kingdom. How much of that is our prayer life, friends? Be honest. Jesus says, guys, what do you want from me? Pray. Well, how about I get a better job? How about I get a little bit more in my bank account? How about I get a little bit more prestigious? How about I advance a little bit more in the world's eyes? That was James and John. And what does this blind man say? No, I got a much more basic need. I need to see. I need to see. And you know, for some of us, Jesus wants us coming humbly to him and saying, you know what? I just want the most basic of needs. I need to see you more clearly. I need to have a closer relationship with you. I need my relationships with you and others to be restored. Jesus, have mercy on me. He says, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Literally, the idea of that word, he has made you whole. It's that word, sozo. It's that he save. 
Literally, Jesus is saying, thy faith has saved thee. I don't think this man just got his eyes fixed. This man got his soul saved that day. When with the eye of faith, he looked at Jesus and saw him for who he was. He knew him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. What's going on here? Why did Jesus say to him, what do you want me to do to you? Because he was drawing out that man's faith. He was bringing it out. He was saying, I want you, I know what you want, but I want you to say it. I want you to verbalize it. I want your faith to be cemented, to be put in concrete in who I am and what I have done for you and no one else. And in the same way, Jesus says to us, what do you want? What do you want? Do you see yourself as a blind beggar spiritually in need of salvation, in need of spiritual sight, in need of restoration? He says, then come to me. I'm the one who can give you what you need. Go your way. Your faith hath made you whole. You say, was it his faith that saved him? No, it was Jesus that saved him. It was Jesus that healed him. But do you know what his faith was? It was the connection to that power. You walk out of here, there's a muddy pile as the snow melts all around us and you fall in it and you're stuck and you can't get up. And someone walks past you and says, give me your hand. And you reach out your hand and he pulls you up. Who saved you? He did. He provided all the power. He pulled you up. What did you provide? Here's my hand. I just need to connect to the strength. I need to connect to the power. That's what Jesus is saying. Your faith has saved you because it was that that connected to my strength, to my healing power. And friends, I don't care what problem you're facing in your life today. I don't care what sin that appears to have mastered you and you cannot get victory over. I don't care what kind of relationship problems you are having in your life. It is the power of Jesus that you can connect to to be healed. How do you connect to that power? It is by faith. It is by the conviction of this humble blind man who said, Lord, you have mercy on me. You are my only hope. Let's step back for just a minute. Here's Jesus passing by. And there's a blind man who realizes this is his chance. Jesus is passing by. He's not going to let it slip. And today, friend, if you see yourself there, don't walk out of this church without experiencing the saving power of Jesus Christ, without placing your faith in him and him alone. Don't allow him to pass by. You do not know when he will pass by you again for you to be saved. Secondly, maybe you see yourself in the crowd today. You see yourself as too busy, too burdened, too bothered by all the details to deal with those insignificant, inconvenient needs. Remember Jesus. This was a rebuke to his disciples. He told them the Son of Man came to serve, and then he proved it by standing still and meeting the inconvenient and seemingly insignificant need of this blind beggar. But maybe above all today, you need to see something about who Jesus is. You know, I was confronted with just one thing this week as I was studying this out and thinking about this message. You know the thought that came to mind? Isn't Jesus amazing? I mean, seriously, isn't Jesus amazing? 
that's who God showed us what humanity is to look like. That's who God sent as our pattern for how we live. That is our Savior, our leader, our Lord. And friends, Jesus has not changed. He has been glorified. He has been exalted. He is now seated at the right hand of God. But his mercy has not changed. And can you imagine for a moment, friend, if you are this morning sitting in your pew feeling entirely insignificant, feeling like your needs cannot possibly matter to Jesus, the son of David. Think again. Because he can cut through all the cries of a hundred insincere people saying, Hosanna, Jesus, Hosanna, Jesus. He's not listening for that one. He's listening for the one who by faith is off in the corner on the sideline and saying, have mercy on me. And he says, I hear that. Today at the right hand of God, he is interceding for you before God. He is praying for you and for me. And as millions of us cry out to him and say, have mercy, I need you yet again. His ear is attuned to stand still and minister and serve for your needs today. Isn't he amazing? Don't you love him? Don't you want to introduce him to everyone you know? This Jesus is real. He's amazing. And what he's done for me He can do for you too.